Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. Trying to get from here to there. Some are running from someone or something. Others are running to someone or something. But we really need to pause. And we get to do that when we gather and worship and and open the Word of God together. We need to pause and ask, what am I running so hard for? What am I hoping to find or achieve or accomplish? Or what is the purpose of all this expense of energy and enthusiasm? Today, we have a new message entitled, Your Master Passion. Part one starts in Mark 10, verse 17. This message will consider the master passions of the rich young ruler, two of Jesus' disciples, and a blind man named Bartimaeus. So let's listen in. Title of our study this morning, Your Master Passion. We've seen recently that the religious leaders who opposed Jesus were intensifying their attacks on Jesus. Tempting, testing, trying, doing all they could to to trap him, to pit him against Herod or pit him against Moses or cause him to lose favor in the eyes of the people. Why? Their hearts were set on his destruction. Their master passion was taking out the master. And I don't mean for lunch. So it's sad to see, and we we read it Wednesday night in our our study uh, of John, uh, that he came unto his own, but his own received him not. One of the saddest verses in all of scripture. We'll see another today. But there's always another side to that coin and that kind coin and that other side is, but as many as received him to these, he gave power to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Well, others come to him seeking something from him like us. They were driven by their master passion, that thing that they just thought they had to have. And we'll see three situations, a rich young ruler, James and John, and then a blind beggar named Bartimaeus. We pick up in verse 17 with the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus seeking eternal life. I think that would be everyone's number one issue, number one concern, primary purpose to find a way to make it to the Father in heaven. And of course, if you're new to all of this, listen, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. Well, we know he's a rich young ruler because Matthew and Luke tell us that. Mark is a little brief in his introduction. He says in verse 17, now as he was going out on the road, that's Jesus, one came running, knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do? that I may inherit eternal life. I've noticed, and you've probably observed as well, life is speeding up. It seems like we're running everywhere, trying to get from here to there. Some are running from someone or something. Others are running to someone or something. But we really need to pause. And we get to do that when we gather and worship and and open the word of God together. We need to pause and ask, what am I running so hard for? What am I hoping to find or achieve or accomplish? Or what is the purpose of all this expense of energy and enthusiasm? Well, here's the thing. Rich young ruler, he came running to Jesus. And if you're going to run, I want to encourage you today, run to Jesus. There at his feet, you will find 
his heart for you, his plan for you, his desires for you. He came running to Jesus. He knelt before him. This is a position of honor, of reverence, of respect. It doesn't say he worshiped him because he doesn't yet realize that Jesus is the son of God and God the son. But he's very close to it. He's about 18 inches away from actually seeing it. And I'll explain that in a moment. He calls him good teacher. And uh, well, his question, it reveals both his great concern and some serious confusion. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's a good question, and I think most people who don't know the scripture, who don't know the Lord Jesus, assume there must be something that they can do to make things right with God, to, to, to find their way to the Father, to become acceptable to him. But all our righteousness is in Christ Jesus. Now, our hope is in Christ Jesus he who has the son has life. So our life is in Christ Jesus. Everything God has for us is in his son, Christ Jesus. So we know something he didn't know. He said, what must I do? We know eternal life is God's gracious gift received by faith in Jesus' sacrifice on Calvary's cross for us. So Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? No one is good, but one, that is God. Don't misunderstand. Jesus isn't saying he's not good. He's both good and he's God. And the 18 inches I'm talking about is the difference from your, your head to your heart. One of the guys who sort of mentored me in my early days as a Christian, he was an apologist named Don Stewart, and uh, he still is an apologist named Don Stewart, written a lot of books uh, on apologetics. But anyway, he baptized my sister and uh, Tina and my wife, Pam, and uh, it was with 500 other people at Pirate's Cove down there in between Newport Beach and Corona Del Mar. Beautiful setting. We were just there, Pam and I, sitting on the, the you know, uh, bluff because she sprained her ankle and couldn't get down to the, the water. But we just sat there and looked and reflected and prayed and all sorts of people. You know, I found if we sit somewhere for two hours, people end up coming up and talking to us. I don't know how that is or why that is, but lots of people did. We met one guy who, who um, worked with Hillsong in Australia and, and uh, was one of their worship guys and worship pastors and spent some time with him and the gal he was with. We met another guy whose favorite movie star was Johnny Depp and he had a little flask. And I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. I said, you know, I, I like Johnny too. I'm really worried about him and praying for him. He does not seem like he's doing well. And you should have seen the look on this guy's face. It almost looked like he thought I was talking about him. And you know, that happens. We say something in passing about someone else, but the Lord says, zing, and, and it goes right to the heart of that person. He went down with the people he was with, down to Pirate's Cove. He came back up about a half hour. He'd definitely been into the flask, but he's like, can we trade numbers? And is there any way we could connect? And so I'm just saying, and, and, and I'm not sure why any of that came up, except I just remember the beach and love it so much. But, but oh, I remember now. <laughs> Why do you call me good? Don used to say people are going to miss heaven by 18 inches. They're going to get it all in their head, but they're never going to let it make, make road in their, inroads in their heart. 
And, and I, I see that with people. Intellectually, they believe in Jesus. But when it comes to loving God with all their heart and soul and mind and strength, which is the result of a right relationship with him, well, that just doesn't ever occur. So Jesus says, why do you call me good? He, it's like he's, he's pulling him in. He's probing and he's saying, think about what you're saying. If I'm a good teacher, not just a good teacher, but the good teacher, good teacher. If that's me and no one's good but God, then who are you standing in the presence of? Well, he says, you know the commandments. Important to note that those who were trying to ensnare Jesus, some of them would have still been around. The crowds that were following him, still around. So he's never speaking just to one person. He's always speaking to those in the crowd as well. He looks at him. He says, why do you call me good? No one's good but God. You know the commandments. And then he says, do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud Honor your father and your mother. These come from the second table of the law. That's what it's called. The first table has to do with our relationship with God. You know, worship him. Don't make any idols. You know, keep his Sabbath holy. Uh, keep his name right. And, and anyway, and, and in any case, this is the second table of the law. It has to do with our relationships to one another. And most of them are don't do this. Why? Well, because all of these things are, are devastating and destructive, both to you, to those around you, to the person you're involving or engaging in. Adultery destroys the, both people, destroys families, destroys futures. Murder, that's obvious. Stealing, bearing false witness, that corruption, failing to, to or defrauding. And then honor your father and mother. It's the first one that's positive. I like that. But even in the negatives, there's a positive, and here's where it, we find it. Matthew adds to this list, love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus made it clear that if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, that'll take care of the first four commandments. And if you love your neighbor as yourself, that takes care of the rest of them because love does no harm. Love always does what's best. Love honors God and obeys God and walks with God and enjoys him, represents him. And love does no harm to one's neighbor. So again, he answers him and said, teacher, all these things I've kept from my youth. And Jesus looking at him, loved him and said to him, one thing you lack. I love this. Jesus doesn't look at him and say, come on, nobody's kept the law since their youth. By the way, because we live in America where all of this is lost on us, for a young Jewish man, age 12 was the age of accountability. That's when a Jewish boy became a man. So he's saying, oh, from my youth, all the way through, we don't know how old he is here. We know he's rich. We know he's young. We know he's a ruler. But he could be late teens, he could be early 20s or beyond. But he's saying, I've always done these things. I, I, I never killed anybody and I never committed adultery and I didn't steal or lie or, or defraud. I honor my, my father and my mother. If all that's true, and Jesus doesn't challenge it, he would have been speaking along the lines of how they understood the law. Because if you didn't commit the act, 
In their minds, you're not guilty. That's why Jesus clarifies and redefines saying, if you looked on a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery in your heart. If you hate someone, that's the seed. That, that's the root. The fruit will be the murder. And, and so the act isn't the primary issue because though it's a serious issue from our perspective, for God, the issue is one of the heart. Because if you're filled with hate and bitterness and anger and, and, and you never ever encounter the person you hate, that will still spill out from you and on to the people closest to you. And I know you know what I'm talking about. You're frustrated, you're upset, things aren't going the way you thought they would, and you're snapping at the people who you love most, who love you most, because they're the only ones there. And so the scripture is real clear when it comes to hatred, we just gotta, you know, give it up. When it comes to bitterness, he says, let no root of bitterness spring up within you, lest many be defiled. Lust, we have to not just acknowledge it's sin. We need to ask God to give us a heart that doesn't lust, to forgive us and cleanse us and keep us clean from such sin. And you can go down the list. It's the same for every one of you. Well, he, he says, he looked at him. He loved him. He said to him, one thing you lack. In the book of Revelation chapter two, speaking to the church at Ephesus, Jesus gives them a nearly perfect report card. He says to them that he knows their works, their labor, their patience, that they can't bear those who are evil. They've tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. He said, you've persevered, you have patience, you've labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you've left your first love. It's an amazing report card from the Lord. Can you imagine standing before the Lord and he says, there's just one thing we need to deal with. And I'd be like, you mean before we get to all the other things, right? Because we know that, that, that there are a lot of things that he's still wanting to change in us. We don't excuse them. We don't blame others for them. We're not victims. We're guilty. And in the midst of all that, to have him say, this is the thing that we need to deal with. I think he wants to do that every time I open the word. That he wants to, to love on me and encourage me, enlighten me, guide me, direct me, redirect me, correct me. So I'm always like, Lord, have your way as I'm in your word today. So, so that's what's going on here. One thing you lack, by the way, to the church of Ephesus in Revelation, I only mention it because there's an interesting parallel, one thing. And when he says you've left your first love, that's important. It doesn't say lost it. No, they, they left it. They, they, they were doing all the right things, but no longer motivated by love for Jesus. They, they were I'm not saying they were going through the motions. They might have had a heart for the people they were ministering to, and they might have wanted to protect the sheep from those, those who were false. But nevertheless, he says, here's the cure. Here's the fix. Remember from where you've fallen. Repent and then repeat the first works. Remember, repent, repeat. That's what he'd be saying to some of us. If you feel far from the Lord today, I want to assure you, it's not Jesus who's moved away. He says, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. And so he's right there. He's right here. 
inhabiting the praises of his people. And he wants to connect with you today, get close to you today. And so he says to them and would say to some of us, repent, remember, repent, and then repeat those first works. To this man, he says, one thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come, take up the cross and follow me. It's seven things, but note, there's three. The, the three words are go, sell, and give. And then there's a promise, you will have treasure in heaven. And then he says, come, because he says, you know, what must I do to inherit eternal life? John says, the life is in his son. These things I've written to you who believe in the Son of God, that you'd continue to believe. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. And so Jesus is saying, come, come to me. Come to the altar as we just sang, because life is in him. Take up your cross. And then he says, you can follow me. The, the, the end road, the end of that road will be in the presence of the Father, accepted by him, acceptable to him in his son, Jesus. So track with me on this. It's important. This isn't any different than what he told everyone else who came to him, nor is it different than what John the Baptist told those who came. When he was saying, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, the soldier said, well, what does that look like for us? He said, well, don't. Don't abuse people. Be satisfied with your pay. Others came asking, well, what does that look like for us? He's simply fleshing it out for this guy. Not everyone's problem is riches. In fact, I'm looking around. I would think most of us aren't troubled with riches. It's not our big problem. But riches can be and are for many a serious snare. Now, God made Solomon rich. And that wasn't his snare. That wasn't his problem. He had problems. He sinned. But what I'm saying is this guy, well, he has an issue both with loving people and with loving God, though he claims to at least do the loving people part and have always done that. So earlier he had said to all who wanted to follow him, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Now he's just defining for him personally what that looks like. But, verse 22, he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He went from what must I do to no can do. I want eternal life, but not at the cost of giving up my current life. And that's really what's happening with him. He went away sad because he had great possessions. Now listen. We're not all rich, but compared to many people in the world, we're rich. People living in India, where I have been, and there are just millions of them living in abject poverty. Many of them seem very happy. The children, I've noticed, seem happy everywhere. They don't know they're poor. They don't know, as long as they're getting fed and they're loved by somebody, they just think this is life and they're happy to be alive. But, but I've noticed that, that here in America, well, we're not satisfied with what we have. And then we raise kids who aren't satisfied with what they have, though they have more than the kids in the whole world. And so something's not right in that whole equation, but, but important to say. He says to him, you know, go and, and sell and give. 
And, and if he were to say that to some of us, truth be told, it wouldn't be that hard. If you're young and God tells you, sell everything you have, give it all away, and then come and follow me, you're like, done, Lord, because you don't have anything anyway. And when you start out, it's almost always that way. Pam and I used to be able to move in a Baja bug. And by move, I mean take everything we own and put it in the Baja bug. If you're thinking, how was that possible? Waterbed. Because we didn't have any other furniture. We were those people, you'd get a few bricks, you could always find some and get a piece of wood and stick it there and then put the books on it. I always had a box of books. And, but the, the point is, we could move in that. Now, they hadn't invented the, the air mattress, which was a big improvement over a waterbed especially if you're sleeping upstairs and there's a leak. It's a serious issue. And, uh, but nevertheless, many of you start out as we did with nothing. That's okay. You work hard. You save. You're a good steward. Then you amass some things. The whole key is not setting your heart on those things. Not setting your heart on his blessings, but, but setting your heart on the blessor and saying, Lord, what do you want me to do with these things you've entrusted to me? Well, Jesus looked around verse 23 and he says to the disciples, how hard is it, how hard it is, excuse me, for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. But the disciples were astonished at his words. Why? They'd grown up under the law and the law declared in the blessings and the curses. If you were good, if you were righteous, if you did what God wanted, he would enrich you. And if you were sinful, then he would discipline and punish you. And so they looked at someone with everything and thought they must be righteous. But it's not always that way. And of course, Jesus could see the heart. He didn't see what people had. He saw them. And so the disciples are kind of blown away by this, astonished. But Jesus answered again and said, clarifying for them, because he understands why they're struggling with this issue. He clarifies saying how hard it is for those who trust in riches. Those words are so, so important here. They're the key. Those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God, because it's going to come down to, do you trust in that or do you trust in him? Do you trust in those or do you trust in him? Is your faith in your stuff or is your faith in him? Because he says it can't be both. It's one or the other. So, so Jesus answers and says, children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Listen, riches can buy temporary security, but it's temporary. Eternal security, eternal life. What that young man came saying he was after that's the gift of God. It can't be bought. It's undeserved. We can never even repay him for it. He gifts it to us. We receive it by faith. It's his grace based on his son's sacrifice on our behalf. So they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, who then can be saved? I mean, if the people who God is blessing can't, may not be able to be saved, but Jesus looked at them and said, with men, it is impossible. What's impossible? Not for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. He said, that's just difficult because it's hard not to let the riches ensnare your heart. But, but he's saying it's impossible for men to make their way, to build the bridge, to close the gap, to make themselves acceptable to God. 
With men it's impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. I believe that we all have things that consume us. They lead us down a road where we give much and sometimes most of our time and energy in our pursuit of them. In our message today, Pastor Sam called these things our master passions. Now, if you desire for your master passions to line up with the will of God, well, consider this verse from Psalm 37, 4, where it says, Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Understand the meaning of this verse. It doesn't mean he will fulfill all of your desires, at least not right away. First, he will place desires on your heart for things that line up with his will. He will cause you to desire the things he wants you to desire, and then he delights in fulfilling those desires. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.